Are you going to spend the rest of the evening prying at that clown's mouth? I, I, I don't... It's frustrating for me if you don't, don't, you don't pay attention. What is this? This is your game, Nicholas, Nicholas. and welcome to it. I'm here to let you in on a few ground rules. You receive the very first key, and others will follow. You'll never know where you'll find them, or how you'll need to use them. So keep your eyes open. How do you... you can see me? Now let's save the questions till afterwards. How does this work? There's a tiny camera looking at you right now. It's impossible. You're right, impossible. You're having a conversation with your television. You want to know how a camera got into your home, don't yes, you? Yes, I would. Write this number down. It's a 24-hour consumer recreation services hotline for emergencies only. But don't call asking what the object of the game is. Figuring that out is the object of the game. Good luck and congratulations on choosing Seat Congress. Welcome back, friends. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And today we are exceptionally honored to welcome uh, a wonderful guest. He is a film critic for New York Magazine and Vulture, and probably one of our favorite film writers currently working. Patently. Uh, Bilga Abiri is here on Hit Factory. Bilga, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's, it's, it's great to finally be on. We're thrilled to have you and uh, even more thrilled by the film that you brought for us to talk about today. Uh, it's David Fincher's 1997 thriller, The Game. I can't say that this one was a favorite when I think about Fincher. Um, I like it more now after this rewatch, I'll say, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, I'm sure. But uh, I'm, I'm always curious to ask our guests at the beginning of the show, Bilga, what does The Game mean to you when did you first play the game? <laughs> I saw the game uh, when it came out in theaters, um, and I don't I don't remember where I saw it. I mean, it, w- it would have been here in New York, but I don't remember like which theater I saw it. I saw it fairly early in its run, like it, what, either opening weekend or like soon thereafter. Um, and Fincher was one of those characters that you know it's funny everybody like knew about david fincher and everybody was excited about david fincher even before david fincher like made a movie um because you know and and i remember alien 3 and having been greatly disappointed by alien 3 at the time (laughs) uh and but like i remember there was so much advanced press about this guy david fincher and about how he was this visionary and how he was this young music video director who did all these crazy things and how alien 3 was going to blow everybody's heads off and and it didn't um <laughs> and then he did 7 and i was like okay i now we get it now we get why this guy mm-hmm. is special um but like the game which was the film he made after 7 
was so different in so many ways. I mean, still kind of in the same sort of thrillery genre, but um, stylistically very different, tonally incredibly different. Um, and and I really, you know, because I had been kind of back and forth on Fincher, because I'd been like, all right, maybe this guy isn't all he's cracked up to be. Oh, maybe he is. And then like I saw the game, I was like, okay, I, I, I'm starting to see a world in which this guy goes on to make great films because this is you know there's a kind of classicism to this that tells you he knows what he's doing you know it's like Mm -hmm. uh, i remember when in um in uh like middle school uh when we were learning in english about like run-on sentences and stuff like that about how (laughs) you're never supposed to do that sort of thing i had you know being like the big precocious nerd that i was i had started reading stuff on my own I, i had picked up a copy of um William Faulkner's Sanctuary. I think it was Sanctuary or as I, uh, or um, Intruder. It might've been Intruder in the Dust, but it, it opens with this in, enormous paragraph that's like, you know, one sentence that's like a paragraph long, classic Faulkner, right? And I went to my teacher and aha, you know, I got you. Like, here's a great, right? He won a Nobel Prize, like, and he does run-ons. And my teacher was like, do you seriously think that William Faulkner couldn't write like a proper sentence if you asked him to? Like, he knows he knows how to do it right. And then he can, like, you kind of have to know how to follow the rules before you can break them. Yes. And the game is a movie you watch it and you're like, oh, right. This guy knows all the rules. This guy knows how to do it. I love that analogy, yeah. allegory, metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, this movie is one where, and, and I think I said this to you, Carly, when we rewatched it this time, it was like, it's just Fincher having maybe the most fun I've ever seen him have in a movie. And it's just him. It's basically like Arnold in like the bodybuilding competition. He's just like flexing every muscle. He's putting himself at all like the attractive angles and just like really showing off here. And everything's wet. (laughs) Yes. Oiled up and and listening. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, he's just having such a good time here showing us how capable he is and like what a deft hand he is, especially in this thriller mode. It's it's mm-hmm. that moment where uh, you, you start to see that that kind of like De Palma and Pecula influence and all of that kind of stuff really on display that he's credited with. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it this time. Carly, tell us tell us your thoughts. What What did you feel this time watching it versus previous experiences with it? How was it? Headline thoughts for now are that I am fucking vindicated because I have loved this movie since I was a child. I saw it way too young at my older sister's house. She has this great theater setup. So we were watching it on a big screen and it was dark and I was like 10 years old and like I was totally entranced, just like completely enthralled every step of the way. And then it ended and I was like, this is the best movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Like (laughs) as a 10 year old, I was like, this is what I want like life to be adventure and like a little bit of fear and like sex and romance and all these things. And then like a happy ending. Mm -hmm. And I have watched it a couple times since then and still really loved it. But I think because it's been five or six years since I'd seen it last. My politics have changed a lot. My life has changed a lot. Um, and the world has changed a lot. I was curious to see like if I still felt the same way about it. And I feel like I'm even like 
more so entrenched in the feelings I had about it as a child, um, precisely because of what a thrill it is and how like technically brilliant it is all executed. And, and then lastly, I think because it is really one of those stories that you can only have in a movie. It's like why movies exist to right. tell these like mm -hmm. incredible labyrinthian like adventures that feel real enough to draw emotion from you, but are also totally implausible. Yeah. And like, I just, I need that kind of escape more yeah. so than ever uh, these days. And I, I just, I love it even more than I did when I was 10. And I think despite it being a movie that Fincher has kind of, I wouldn't say he's like, you know, said, this isn't my baby anymore. I didn't make this thing. I don't C love certainly it. Certainly not to the level of like <laughs> Alien 3. But. No. Yeah. But I feel like I've read that he is not the biggest fan of it. And you mentioned some sort of third act problems. I think it's actually his, his Fincheriest movie. I don't know. I just, I just love it. In a fun way too, uh, and I think Bilga, you mentioned this in some of your your writing on the film. We should mention that at the top as well that that you have an excellent and lengthy monograph on the game uh, in the Arrow special edition Blu-ray release of this film. Uh, but you you mentioned that uh, this movie, and I think Fincher has said this himself, is is also kind of a movie about making movies. There's a lot of the fun of poking at the artificiality of what he's constructed and the way that movies do that too. The, there's the artificiality and there's also, you know, what Carly, you said, which is that it's, it's a thing that can only exist as a movie, right? Like nothing like this can actually happen. Um, right. right. But, but there's something very, um, it's not catharsis. That's not, that's not the word I'm looking for, but, when you watch a movie that can kind of only exist in the realm of cinema, I actually think that that makes you reflect on your life more. You know, like I watch so many films that are like incredibly, you know, realistic and hard hitting. And they're about these terrible things happening to people. And, you know, they never have happy endings. I mean, they're, you know, and look, plenty of my favorite movies are like that. And in fact, I would say, you know, as much as I love the game, it's not even my favorite Fincher film. And, you know, the couple of films that I would put up above this are very much of the, you know, grim, open-ended ending uh, style of filmmaking. But when you watch something like this, like the, the game, the movie, is it actually kind of like the game in the movie, the game? Like, it makes you reflect yes. on your life. Like, it actually in some ways has more of a, Again, I don't want to use the word catharsis because catharsis, I think, is almost the opposite of this. But 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 when you you know when you watch something like this, you're like, this can only happen in the movies. Then you're like, why can it only happen in the movies? And then like your mm -hmm. mind starts racing. Like, what is different about the world that this can't happen? Because the other thing about the game is, you know, like you said, 1997. It's kind of like a movie that could only have been made in 1997. Right. Yes. Maybe yep, few, but, but it's like sort of at the pinnacle of like 90s action cinema, but before The Matrix. Right. Like you can't make this movie after The Matrix, you know, nope. and you can't make this movie after September 11th. Like there's so many things happen at the end of the millennium after which like 
a movie, even a movie like the game, not not the, the game itself is obviously impossible, but a movie like the game becomes even more impossible almost immediately after <laughs> the game comes out. Um, and I think that's fascinating. Like it's it's more so than any other Fincher film. I, I would say this one actually is like the most time capsuliest of his films, um, which is funny because it also has like it, it also feels like it, it could have kind of emerged out of the 80s with Michael Douglas yes. and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just I think it's just a fascinating movie. Like the more you think about the game, the more your mind just sort of runs in all these different directions yeah for how kind of windy it all is and hitting you with something new at every single moment there is lots of uh time to sort of reflect there's a lot of that kind of you know dark night of the soul and and the moments when it slows down to actually uh give us that sort of interiority of the michael douglas character some of its most fascinating and interesting parts as well Uh Uh, but you're so right bilga that it's it's such a a time capsule it's it's one that really can only happen in this era and and i think another kind of curvature of this is that it uh requires us and i think succeeds at making us sympathetic toward a millionaire sicko um a billionaire billionaire even um and you think of adjusted billionaire right inflation yes he has has 600 million dollars today that would be like 100 percent a billionaire today right he's a billionaire and he's old money sure but you know it's uh you just think of this kind of like endless twitter discourse cycle right now about a particular kind of movie uh that is very popular right now with like ready or not with knives out and glass onion with the menu this sort of wish fulfillment fantasy of kind of the comeuppance of like the the elite and the wealthy where our characters are are more kind of like working class folk who are getting one over on and proving kind of the inferiority of this class uh and this movie does the opposite it has us kind of like give a happy ending to this guy and and sympathize with him and and realize that he's He's kind of like us. He's got his own traumas and his own cross to bear. I mean, you're absolutely right. In fact, if you went, it would be an interesting exercise to try and make the game today. First of all, it would have to be from the point of view of CRS. <laughs> it could, yes. You couldn't make it from the point of view of the millionaire. It would have to be from the point of the point of view of the people that are like screwing him over. But of course, it would not end with him, you know, learning a lesson and becoming a better person. It would end with him, you know you know blowing up or being torn to pieces and fed to something um but um which is which you know which which speaks to you know which speaks to all sorts of things about you know the world today what I, and that's one of the things though that i love about the game which is that and i think this is why it's important to have a, an actor like michael douglas in this part who Absolutely. kind of turned you know i mean his whole career not his whole career but kind of the high high point of his career the high period of his career in the 80s and early 90s really was playing uh, you know just like a scumbag that you still on some level trust right the idea of and i love that because i think that's actually very you know i think that's a very human idea right like that that nobody is irredeemable and that there's something at the heart of every person that is probably good but that's just been kind of covered over with all the bullshit that that they've sort of lived through in their life um and you know and that was the, i mean that was that was michael douglas's whole thing uh, there's a there's a great story about um sherry lansing who was you know uh, head of paramount when they um 
when they made uh, Fatal Attraction, I, I mentioned this in my in, in my piece on the game, but mm-hmm. um, when you know when they were first screening um, Fatal Attraction, and there's the scene after his first sort of dalliance with uh, Glenn Close, that he comes home and like musses up his bed to make it look like he slept in it because his yep. his family's been out out of town and they're coming back, and um, and there were apparently there were like some chuckles in the audience uh, when they were screening it and Sherry Lansing leans over to Michael Douglas and, and she says, she says, I can't believe it. They've already forgiven you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you know, she's, she's, she's like, yeah. that's just how charming you are that they've already forgiven you. Um, and that's kind of his whole thing. You know, even though you don't think of him as like charming, like, like when you think charming actors, Michael Douglas is not who first comes to mind. <laughs> no. um, but there is something like weirdly vulnerable and likable about him, even underneath all the sort of, you know, the the, the oiliness and you know just the the the, the sleaziness um, of of his, the characters that he plays, um, and and the game I think is becomes kind of the pinnacle of that. Like he's such a shithead at the start of this yes. movie, he's a <laughs> thoroughly detestable human being, um, and yet he's Michael Douglas. Well, oh, let's see where this goes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth, on line three. Your ex-wife. I know who it is. Take a message. Consumer Recreation Services. Call that number. Why? They make your life fun. I'll call them. Do it. For you. I said I'll call, okay? It's just that I hate surprises. What are you selling? Oh, it's a game. A game? We provide whatever's lacking. And what if nothing is lacking? Admit to yourself that it sounds intriguing. I need the police. There's been a break-in in my house. No money, no identification, you are in a fix. Let me toy with like a bunch of depraved children. You're with them. You're behind the whole thing, aren't you? What are you talking about? You brought them to me! I am a very wealthy man, and whenever they're paying you, I'll double it. Who did this to me? Why? There was an incident a few days ago. Don't you start that! A nervous breakdown, they said. I am very fragile right now. Nicholas, you're not about to shoot anyone. What do you get for the man who has everything? That vulnerability that you're talking about comes through in in this character of Nicholas, Nikki Van Orton. Even in the earliest scenes when you know, they're doing a lot of establishment to say this, this guy is like a cold lizard man. He has, he, he plays Nicholas with a kind of sadness. That's not very obvious, right? It's something that I think Michael Douglas just does well because he's kind of a man with not a traditionally handsome face. It's a face that like feels like it's interesting and has had like a life, an interesting life potentially. And, and I think his affect as Nikki and in a lot of his other characters is one that's kind of lilting. Like he just sort of seems at once bored, but also, you know, a little bit melancholy. And so like you are immediately kind of like, softened to him or at least curious about him and that I think is the only way this movie works Mm -hmm. like outside of the sort of structure of the film and 
the story being told the way that Fincher tells it so beautifully and technically uh, pristinely. Like you have to have that push pull with the character of Nikki from the jump. Otherwise, like you don't go along with with any of the story. And I'm so glad you brought up the part about where this movie sits in its uh, sort of uh, proximity to the to the millennium. We talk about this on the show a lot because we're a, a podcast about the 90s and it is a decade that is you know, just full of media and full of art. Yes. But like in my mind uh, is, is a 10 year period that has sort of one of the biggest arcs of political societal material shift. And the movies that we get at the end of the nineties are all sort of playing with this idea of artifice. Mm-hmm. We're many years removed from the end of history and people are realizing if they can't articulate it, that like the promise of that did not come to fruition and that things don't feel good, Mm -hmm. even though they're supposed to, and we're being told that they are. Um, And so all these films being John Malkovich, American Beauty, The Matrix, Fight Club, whatever it is, like they're all sort of playing with this idea of like, this isn't real. (laughs) Something is existing beneath the surface and that something is rather sinister. And this movie, as you said, is also playing with artificiality. So it has that kind of like late 90s mistrust of of things and the way that they appear, but has this happy ending. And so it feels like it, it really can't exist anywhere else except for as an inflection point between the early 90s where there's a lot of patriotism and sort of like, you know, we're in this peace dividend period of of the military and America's great and consumerism, um, except for this one other movie that Michael Douglas did in 1993 called Falling Down, which is another <laughs> personal favorite of mine. Yep. Before we get to the end of the 90s, uh, when we really start to get a lot darker. Um, and I just think like not only could it only have been made in in that year, but I also can't think of any other movie that does that, that sort of bridges the gap yeah. between those two periods of the decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, um, I am, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is something you guys have talked about endlessly, but I, I mean, American history, you know, American history from this period you know, the, the most stark example of it is how mainstream American films and particularly action films, the way they go from the start of the 90s to the end of the 90s. And by mm-hmm. the end of the 90s, they're so fucking paranoid. Yes. <laughs> Everybody is so paranoid out of their minds. Um, yes. <laughs> right. And of course, like the, the couple of years before we have the Y2K stuff, but it's just like, you know, everything is just so sunny and bright and glistening and and free spirited um and the the, you know the bad guys are always so cartoonish at the start of the 90s right you know the the under sieges and those types of movies Mm -hmm. and then you know or like you know the specialist or whatever and then by the end of the 90s (laughs) it's just like (laughs) it's everything is just so gonzo evil uh you know irredeemable yeah and i think that's one of the other things that makes the, the game so fascinating because you know it was a the script had been written earlier in fact the you know the the um 
Roncado and Ferris, the, the screenwriters, you know, this was the screenplay they had written before they um, before they wrote The Net. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was, you know, this was the screenplay they wrote and everybody loved it. And then they got, you know, the, the net writing gig, I guess, as a result of it. And it's it's funny if you th- imagine this movie being made at the end of the 80s or start, you know, early 90s, um, like that that ending wouldn't have been remarkable. It would have kind of been like, all right, uh, I guess this is what the movie is. I, I think it would have been still sort of surprising, but but it would have sort of fit into the mold of that type of film, perhaps in some ways, I mean, you know, I think it's still distinctive enough that, you know, it would stand out, but, but, you know, you maybe wouldn't have been sort of astounded by that ending. Um, by 1999, that ending would have been completely impossible, but in 1997, mm-hmm. that ending is just still possible enough, but also totally fucking surprising and just like whoa wait a happy ending what's going on you know um because uh, you know even i mean even that sorry i don't know why i keep bringing up under siege but i was just you know the other day i was reflecting (laughs) a a film we just did on the show like two weeks ago by the way i I probably saw your tweets about it um because i mean under siege was a movie i watched like a billion times back when it came out but but you know that that final scene of like that like you know how's this for a move like that whole ridiculous final moment of under siege which i mean my friends and I just, you know, we would just like r- repeat that line constantly, uh, you know, in college. But but it was just I mean, it was it was totally ridiculous. But like it was also sort of a like an exaggerated example of how a lot of movies ended back then. You know, they weren't yes. quite yes. that corny, but but they all kind of ended in that way. And here it's that, you know, she you know, there's that whole conversation about the you know, about whether she wants, you know, he wants to come and have coffee with her at the airport. And he just sort of looks around and the movie ends on that. Like the fact that at that point, the movie still can't even like, he can't get in the car. It has to, he has to be standing there and then the movie ends. Um, Like that already is sort of the late nineties creeping in. Like you can't get in the car, but you can consider it. And then we'll cut the fate to black, (laughs) you know? Right. The the option is there. And it's also a precursor to a lot of kind of, more like mind bender sort of slightly more cynical movies that come after it for the next you know several decades it's it's uh it's the spinning top from inception right, right? Exactly. but exactly is but, the game over is the, is the game still going on you know um yeah she yeah. has that slip up at the very end when he asks her where she's from and she right. says oklahoma first or something right or, right, right and yeah. then and says then another city colorado and even yeah. at that moment you're like it, which one is it yeah, like exactly what, is she is she actually telling him the truth? Yeah. But yeah. you're also left with this kind of euphoric feeling that you really want it to be true. And yeah. that's what I like about it too. Yeah. Yeah. I was interested to read uh Bilga that Jonathan Mostow was initially attached to this right. film. Uh, the the original director who went on in the same year as the game was released to to put out the fantastic breakdown which we've yeah. done on this program as well. Uh, another movie that's not quite about like, you know, wealthy, you know, people facing this anxiety, but definitely has kind of an underlying anxiety of the working class kind of out to get you yes. like this movie oh, yeah. does. Um, but uh, yeah, it would be interesting seeing this film in anyone else's hands but Fincher's because I think he has sort of a a very unique perspective and worldview that's like perfectly, uh, perfectly catered to this kind of film. Yeah. And, and it is I think the thing that makes that that kind of finale that that last act 
uh, confounding to a lot of people who admire his work and, mm-hmm. and sort of an outlier. But I think it's also the thing that makes it feel so wonderful and kind of so transcendent as well as just how murky and how kind of perverse his perspective and his worldview is and where he lets the movie go beforehand. Like he really, really does let the scale tip and make you feel like you are inevitably going to see this horrible ending. Like, like you, you, you think for a moment, Oh, this guy's going to jump and it's going to, that's how this movie's going to end with just the same way it began with, with, you know, a, a man jumping from a building. Um, and again, you know, with Michael Douglas, I think that they're kind of they're they're perfect partners in this. It is yeah. uh, it is absolutely his star power and his kind of charisma and and unique sort of charm, mm-hmm. uh, while also being able to wade through kind of like the murkiness of humanity and and the ugliness of it and and come out on the other side of it prevailing. Yeah, if you think about it, I mean. We never really want directors or, or artists to always be in their comfort zone, right? Um, you know, we want them to break out of their comfort zone. Um, and in some ways, it actually makes perfect sense to me that David Fincher, he hasn't disowned the movie, but but he's, he, you know, I think he said in an interview, he's like, yeah, we just couldn't make the ending work. Like in retrospect, he's like, you know, that, that ending didn't work. I'm like, no, that ending works perfectly. You just don't realize it because your comfort zone is like these dark, grim, open-ended, the Mm -hmm. world sucks and I hate everything in it endings. Like that's Fincher, right? And this is the only time, I think, that where he allows himself to have an unabashedly fuck yeah, happy ending. And it's (laughs) in that sense, I mean, maybe it didn't feel that way at the time because it was back in the day, but it's like the, the... you know, the, the most daring movie he's ever made. I can't, we were just talking about this and I can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast or right before the podcast. So forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but but it does feel like, like over the years, as I watch more and more Fincher movies, I'm like, this is actually in many ways his most daring movie. This is, this mm-hmm. is, this is the one that really stands out because he's actually going to places that he's uncomfortable going to. That, because he's David Fincher, that, uncomfortable place he's going to happens to be like a happy ending um where like conflicts are resolved and you know trauma is expunged i mean who the hell can make a movie like that now um nobody uh least of all david fucking fincher you know um (laughs) so it's really uh you know so it really stands out in that way another thing on on michael douglas I, i i was thinking about this I think last year at some point when, you know, Vulture did a thing on uh, the erotic thriller, I think around the time Deep Water was coming out. And, and I mm-hmm. revisited the whole Michael Douglas thing. And I, and I wrote a piece about why Michael Douglas was so effective as like an erotic thriller lead or even just the lead in general. And and I think part of it actually had to do with that face because like there's so many layers to that face. I mean, Carly, you were saying like it's like he's, you know, this is like this person has lived a life, which is fascinating also because the game was apparently the original screenplay was written with like a much younger person in mind, which mm-hmm. is, I, I can't, I can't believe <laughs> like this movie, no. you, you had like a young person in the middle of this movie. Yeah, that sounds nuts. Um, but, um, but you know, it's like he has, he looks just enough like Kirk Douglas that he has kind of that Hollywood sort of, there's yes. something familiar about his face. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's, you know, I mean, his, the, his features are sort of, you know, he's got 
dimple chin and the kind of this you know the he's he's got resting bitch face um he does. right <laughs> I, I, yeah I, I, so i mean he's got all these things that are quote unquote imperfections um and his face is maybe a little too wide and his eyes are kind of a little you know big and beady i mean it's like these are not things one would typically have said back in the 80s was like you know attractive but you know but he's but there's just a, a solidity to that face as well you know like he can be a you know he could be a statue um and so there's just there's so many different things happening on that face just the face alone and he knows how to use it you know he actually said um again when he was making fatal attraction um you know because he had originally in the 60s he had you know rejected the family business he didn't want to be an actor he mm-hmm. didn't want to follow in his dad's footsteps he actually you know he was he was on the outs with his father which also feeds into this to this movie a little bit but you know his his father had basically you know abandoned the family had had affairs you know michael douglas you know and kirk douglas were basically estranged for part of their you know part of their lives and um and then you know they 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 reconciled, but Michael didn't want to get into acting. Um, but he also didn't know what the hell he was going to do. He spent you know time in college, just like he was interested in cars. He was interested in girls. He was kind of a, a hippie, although not you know a particularly active hippie. I think you know I'm sure he was a huge pothead. Um, but but when he was getting ready to do Fatal Attraction, he was uncomfortable with how passive the character was. Um, and he called his dad and he said, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, this character is really passive. He doesn't do anything. I don't know what to, what, you know, how to handle it. And, you know, Kirk's, Kirk said, well, Michael, you do nothing better than anyone I know, <laughs> which is, which is like, <laughs> you know, which is like, I, maybe it was praise, but it kind of sounds like a diss. Um, yeah. and it, uh, you know, but like, that's true. He's right. Like there is something of like, you can just kind of watch this guy and you don't have to love him, but you're kind of like, huh, I wonder where he's going with this, you know, um, even if he does nothing. And, and that is, you know, perfect for the game, especially the first part of it, because he's a completely passive character. I mean, his whole life is run by others. You know, when he, when he, when he comes out of his house and in the car and, you know, drives the car, looks like it's on a track. I mean, everything in his life, (laughs) You know, he he goes to it's the building, you know, it's his father's building. He has his father's job. He has his father's office. He has his father's secretary. I mean, you know, it's it's like his whole life is regimented and orderly and he he's not really living it. He's he's totally, you know, he's totally passive in this, except for the few moments when he, you know, opts to be a jerk. Um, But I think there is something very interesting about the fact that you know, because he lives a life that is completely controlled by others, by the people below him, he is particularly susceptible to the game because it's basically, what if all the people who were in charge of like making sure your life was orderly and progressed properly suddenly decided they were going to completely fuck your life over, Mm -hmm. right? Um, They were going to start spilling drinks on you. They were going, you know, they were like your car, you were going to get in a car and then like the the driver was going to bail and it was going to go like all these things. It's all drivers and, you know, delivery people and, and, you know, secretaries and assistants and attorneys and like all the people around him who make his life run smoothly are exactly the people who, 
you know, who, who turn, who, who basically upend his life, um, which is also why, you know, there's something satisfying about watching a, 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 you know, a billionaire get put through the ringer like this. There's also this like paradox about his character, which is that he is clearly a powerful man. Like he is a man of wealth. He is um, an assertive businessman. You know, he, he has societal capital um, and economic capital, um, but is also, as you say, like not really in charge of his life. So, so there's this push pull with him um, from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's like not a person. You know, it's like he's he's yep. he hasn't had it. I mean, we've talked about how, you know, there's life behind the Michael Douglas visage. But this character doesn't have a life. I mean, he hasn't. It's so I mean, it's 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 funny because there's that. I mean, and and I love that early phone conversation between him and his wife, uh, his ex-wife. Oh, yeah. when She's called to wish him a happy birthday. And it's like, you know, there, he doesn't even say hello. He's, he he says her name. When she calls, he knows it's her. Um, it's like he doesn't care about the birthday, but he has noted that she's almost missed the deadline. Like he's like, yes. you know, <laughs> like, you know, right. he cares, but he doesn't care because um, he doesn't have anybody. Uh, and it's it's this isn't a flaw in the film, but there is one thing about it, which is like, I can't imagine this guy married. <laughs> like, what was that marriage like? You know, um, <laughs> right. because he has, he has nothing. I mean, he has no life and, and, and it's like, he's still a kid in so many ways, which, you know, I mean, the film kind of plays with this idea. Um, you know, I mean, like the movie is, uh, to, to quote the great Jamie Lee Curtis, it's about trauma, <laughs> right. And childhood <laughs> trauma in particular. Um, yes. And but it's like it's that has it's like all that has completely paralyzed him as a person and, and he's never really grown up. And, you know, the 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 um, is it Ilsa, the um, the his his maid, I guess. Uh, yeah. I mean, the 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 stuff that she leaves for him, it's all like it's like children's food. Right. I mean, yep. it's yes. like sandwiches and like burger and the I mean, this guy has enough money that, you know, he could have a proper meal at any time he wants it. But like she gives him his little his little sandwiches and later on he's like even drinking a glass of milk. I mean, it's the just milk. Yes. And yeah. a cupcake with a candle in it, little a cupcake. chocolate cupcake candle. covered yeah. in frosting. It's, and it's the most you like get at school. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's the most like austere looking burger I've ever seen too. And there's yeah. like no condiments with the French fries. It's just, it's just like, you know, plain food. <laughs> That's his birthday meal. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so, um, I mean, at that point, it's not sad yet because we don't really know much about the the guy. But you know, when you think about it later, it's it's sad. Um, and and it is really, um, you know. And I said, I mean, this was this was what my monograph was ultimately about. But the idea is that like it's not even like this movie isn't about him about making him a good person or making him a better person. It's just about making him a person. Like yes. it's just about <laughs> putting him in a place to actually live his life and sort of have agency over his life as opposed to not having a life, but having agency over other people's lives, you know? Yes. Yeah. And Fincher does such a great job of conveying that interiority and also 
removing sort of like the sausage grinding mechanisms of how his life even functions. Uh, And it's even before the game even starts, I realize, you know, the the way that he frames things very sort of symmetrically low. So you can just see Michael Douglas. So much of this first part of the movie is Nick Van Orton talking to people whose heads are cut off in the frame and and who he is not looking at. He's barely even registering these people. And uh, for some reason in my mind, I, I, I distinctly remember the pen leaking into the shirt pocket. And then I remember him making a phone call to request that there are shirts in his limo when he arrives in Seattle. Right. But that scene doesn't exist. And he gets into a car and he's got a selection of monogrammed shirts ready for him to to choose through. And we don't see how they got there. We don't see him make a request. It just is there on command. And later on, Fincher starts to manipulate that to increase our paranoia. All of these little moments where things show up and we're not quite sure how they got there. Uh, there are, you know, people in places and settings. Tommy Flanagan is like asking him for change at the airport outside. And then he's the cab driver later. Even little minuscule things like that cab ride that ends up, you know, uh, off the pier and and into the San Francisco Bay shows and emphasizes before it pans up to his face, the car door getting locked, which is such a in sort of anodyne and, and, you know, normal thing for a cabbie to lock a door in a big city. Uh, but it's charged with so much of this kind of terror once we're in the game and when we don't really know what's a red herring and what's a loose end and what's actually kind of the manipulations. Uh, it's it's so much fun kind of just playing along and figuring out what's going to hold hold uh, some sort of credence and, and what is just there as like kind of a dangling thread. Yeah, I was actually just thinking about that, the the little um, insert, the insert of the, the car locking because I was... Um... You know, the other day I was in an Uber and I was just looking at the lock on my door and I was like, oh, it's it's unlocked. And and there was a part of me that's like, oh, I, I just assumed that the cab, you know, the Uber drivers just lock the doors, which, of course, is I, I don't know that they do. But it made me think about, you know, the other thing about this film and the, the time capsule equality of it is that there is this like it's still an analog world. Yes. Where but but it's like an analog world, but he's living in almost a digital world. Like he's living the life that we live now where everything is just kind of delivered yes. to us or everything, yes. you know, we don't have to do anything to to get things um, or or to, to make decisions or, or <laughs> live our lives <laughs> with scare quotes. Um, <laughs> but um, but, you know, he's kind of living the life we live now. And it's and the film presents it as as, you know, antiseptic and. Um, and and you know unpleasant and almost non-existent, and, and that's I think another reason why the film I think gains poignancy over the years. Yes, you know. Yeah, we were kind of talking about that. This the way that this film has that kind of tech impulse to it, and presages a lot of things that have been very normalized now. Yeah. You yes. know, some like twenty odd years on. Yeah. Um, even and it's San Francisco. And the movies, it, yeah. Sam, yes. like, which is about to become, you know, the, the uh, you know, ground zero for all this stuff, you know? Yep. 
Yeah. I mean, even like when you think about like the the CRS offices versus all of like the Van Orton building stuff, which is not too far away, actually, from where I work on Sansom now, actually. Oh, it's uh, all in the I, financial I, district. I make that I make that sh- <laughs> uh, that drive right down California oh, wow. Street by the cable cars on that road every single day. Uh, <laughs> by any means, you know, the, the CRS offices compared to the sort of old money world of of Nick's has this kind of techie startup, like chaotic sort of energy to it. Everything is a little bit kind of more microscopic in comparison to these big vaulted sort of ceilings and open rooms that sort of dwarf him. All those glass rooms and glass doors in the CRS office. Yes. Yeah. And then, of course, like the like really harsh fluorescent lighting that we see on everything there. Um, but but even in, you know, the, the components of the game, there is this sort of techno quality to everything. I, I was thinking about the scenes where uh, the CNN anchor is speaking to him at his home as he's being observed through that horrifying uh, clown oh my uh, statue, <laughs> statuette sort of thing. Um and the way that it kind of presents itself, there is sort of these kind of like glitchy moments that almost feel like it's pre-recorded. But to a 2023 mind, I'm thinking this is some sort of elaborate deep fake technology. Okay. You know, they don't ever really explain how exactly they know what to do. Maybe they're like pre-recorded and it's like a choose your own adventure type, like mm-hmm. press a button and, and here's what he says next kind of thing. Yep. But they almost feel too specific to have been pre-planned. Yeah. And the way that it kind of cuts in between him speaking directly to Nick Van Orton and rebroadcasting the news when when Ilsa, when the maid walks in, uh, it, it's it's very uncanny in a way yeah. that uh, that is deeply unsettling. Yeah. All right, what happens? What are you doing? The methodical. I can't trust the room service in the hotel. I sure as hell can't trust the fucking car. Who? CRS, who do you think? Jesus, man, I think what I almost got you into. What are you saying? Oh, I'm so fucked. They just fuck you, and they fuck you, and they fuck you. And then just when you think it's all over, that's when the real fucking starts. All right, calm down. Just take a breath. They won't stop, Nick. I, I paid the bill. I gave them their fucking money. They won't leave me alone. What are they doing to you? Everything. I'm a goddamn human pinata. Calm down. And why do they keep playing if you already paid? I don't know. I don't know. I paid them more to make it stop. They did this. It's a flat tire. How do you know? Get a grip on yourself. We will figure it out. Okay. Okay. You know how to change a tire? No, don't you? Look, it can't be that hard. I don't think we should be out in the open like this. Get the teletrack. It's in the glove compartment. Somebody put him in the car. You're dying the whole thing, aren't you? What are you talking about? You brought them to me. Oh, these were in your car. They're right there in your fucking car, Conrad. 
the fact that this movie presages a lot of the sort of ease of things that only billionaires had access to and now like it's the one thing people have left is yep. just the ability to consume things whenever they want. Um, everything else is gone, but that's what we can still do here in America. Um, that pre, you know, presages our, our current moment, as you said, Bilga, but I also feel like there's this idea of like selling experiences that wasn't like quite a thing in the nineties, but is like very much a thing now. Yeah. Aaron and I were talking about how there's like, um, we have like, and, and they're, you know, still commodified kind of, uh, maybe like abstracted, fantastical experiences, a little bit smaller than a game, of course, sure. like a CRS type thing, but we've got like escape rooms, escape rooms um, and like, you, you've got like those sort of like, uh, smash rooms or, or like kind of like break cages where you go and like, there's this sort of catharsis in taking a bat and sledgehammer to everything. Like these little commodified moments of stepping out of the comfort and the strictures of your day to day. That's like a, that, that thing sat, that sat with me this time watching it because I felt like that's such a, it sort of was only available to an elite class, you know, in the nineties. And now it's this thing that is very much another market, um, that, that we all operate in. And, uh, you know, I'm not making a joke here, but I kind of am. This movie is also just about like rich people giving like insane gifts to one another which is also like a trope <laughs> that exists in movies and tv like when you think yeah. about succession and yeah. whatever else like well, fincher also even references uh, in zodiac the the most dangerous game right, right. like the like kind of wealthy and elite hunting human beings yes for sports. right 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 yeah his and, brother um, gave him this like yeah. what <laughs> it's like and and uh by the way you mentioned succession i i i, I mean Succession's opening credits. We gotta admit that that's yes. Yes, I wrote they, that they, down. They got Bilga. that from the game, right? I they mean, did. it's got every time I see Succession, I'm like, the, the game. It's the game. You know, <laughs> I'd completely uh, forgotten about that. And then yeah. I we we saw the opening moments of this movie, and I just wrote down in big letters in my notes, Succession. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing was that uh, you know we were talking about the um, well, you you were saying you know this is something that back then. I mean within at least the fiction of the film um only the wealthy had access to this kind of experiences but but part of it is also like only the wealthy needed it right mm-hmm. because they had these kind of very regiment i mean again this is I, I don't know what it was like to be a millionaire in the 90s i mean whatever but <laughs> but but you know at least within sort of the way i'd like to think about it is that they sort of needed these things to kind of have real life experiences or, or to feel like they were experiencing something authentic because so much of their lives is phony in, in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. But now like all our lives are phony. So now we yep. need experiences too, which is, you know, I mean, I've never been to an escape room. I think I would enjoy it, but uh, but part of me is like, <laughs> I, I, I had a good I time. I feel like life is a, is an escape room. You know, like, life yes. is an escape room, Belga. <laughs> you, know? you are right. Uh, yes. Um, but um, but what was, the, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, you know, you were talking. I mean, we were talking about how this is, you know, predicting sort of the way technology will sort of develop and, you know, the tech industry and everything. I mean, the other thing about it is with CRS and, and this is I, 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 I understand that this is a development, a plot development within the space of 
the game in the game. So it, it might be phony, but there's that moment when I think it's Christine says it late in the film when she talks about when he went in for his initial um, for his initial assessment and he was answering all these questions and they're like, and she's like, they're not getting the, it's not your answers that, that matter. It's your handwriting. <laughs> it's your handwriting and your fingerprints mm-hmm. and your DNA that you're leaving all over the place, which is, you know, so much like technology today, or at least how we conceive of it, which is, or like, like Twitter prompts asking you for your five favorite things. And it's like, no, they're just going to harvest this to find out what your yes. passwords are. Like yes. this idea that they are giving you something and you think the actual transaction is the thing that you're getting, but no, actually the transaction is all your data and your information and your like biometric info, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very CRS. I mean, that's yes. that's basically what's happening here. So that, that aspect of the paranoia um, is prophetic, really. Yeah, there's like this kind of interesting duality in the film with the sort of like horrors of that level of connectivity, but also sort of this sort of techno optimism to it as well, because of that ending that it plays with, you know, it's, it's uh, kind of fascinating to think of Fincher's evolution with technology as he progresses in his career. And of course, as we know what we begin to know as the the 21st century sort of shapes itself, but even thinking about a, a movie that comes out not too long after this, like panic room and the concept of like, you know, surveillance uh, as both, you know, like a, a, a pro and a con in that movie in a lot of ways. Uh, but then, of course, he makes one of the sort of defining films about the development of modern technology with the social network and kind of the intricacies of that and the horrors behind the sort of narcissists that are behind those kinds of creations. But in this movie, yes, there is like that that paranoia of the data harvesting, the gathering of your your bank account numbers and your handwriting and your signature and all these answers to figure and out passwords. And being constantly surveilled. And being constantly surveilled. And then at the end, there is also sort of this strange kind of what if of what if all of this was used in service of a a really wonderful gift. What if this was like an altruistic kind of thing that technology was utilized for? And that was the and that was the promise of technology. I mean, yes. remember before? I mean, before all of this. I mean, I remember when I first started using Facebook, and I was like, "This is great! Like, I can connect with every people from my high school, people from Turkey that I haven't seen in years. They're all here. They're all here in this ballroom, and they're here, and they love me. <laughs> and Standing it's ovation. My birthday. They're they're all saying happy birthday on my birthday. I mean, how great is this? How great! Like we were all together. This is this is like my happy ending, right? I mean that that was kind of the promise of this whole thing, and and mm. that was sort of what attracted so many people to it. And, you know, watching the game now, you're kind of like, huh. In retrospect, maybe I shouldn't have been fooled because it's utterly absurd that this would happen and that that's what these people were selling. That's what, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, it turns out, wasn't actually selling me uh, the greatest birthday party I've ever had, you know, Um, which is also why I think the social network is a great companion piece to this movie, like those two yep. movies. And in fact, I feel like Fincher should maybe make a, a third movie. Like there, I think there's like a trilogy to be done here mm. um, because it really is, you know, I mean, it, it's the story of our time. If you think about it, there is this broader 
political narrative at the time from Clinton very mm-hmm. explicitly um, telling us that that technology is going to save us. Oh, yeah. He has several speeches, uh, particularly around this time, 96, 97, where he is explicit about the fact that uh, the people who are working in tech are are our messiahs. They are going to save us from every possible challenge we may face. Climate disaster, uh, famine, financial crisis, what have you. These men are going to be the ones that, that, um, that save us. And, and so there's also this kind of interesting play between the, the promise of technology and, and the men behind it. Um, in this movie and like old money wealth, the wall street, literally Gordon Gecko, mm-hmm. um, the wall street types who are kind of like no longer in charge of things anymore. There's like a new kid in town that's kind of showing them the ropes. And that's like maybe too deep of a metatextual read, but I found myself thinking about that um, because, because I think that reflects a conversation and a shift that was happening in America specifically um, quite nicely. Yeah. It's uh, you know, I just remember, I I always think about this, you know, Clinton always used to say, I'm going to build that bridge to the 21st century. And I'm like, I'm like, (laughs) my dude, have you seen the 21st century? Like we don't want that. Have you seen it, buddy? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm telling you this from, you know, I'm a time traveler from 2022. Don't build the bridge. (laughs) Um, but, um, yeah, no, you're right. And, and I think it's interesting that, and here's where it's, the film is maybe not prophetic, but, but it's still fascinating. We never actually, I mean, we meet the, the, the peons of CRS. We never actually meet the people who run CRS. Like who are these? Don't meet the big guys. Um, Yeah. And, and there is, and I think, you know, in some ways, you would think that that makes more sense for technology that you would never know who's in charge, right? Because it's, you know, it's it's distributed. Um, it's, I mean, it's, you know, incredibly nerdy shit. You know, uh, it maybe doesn't need someone in charge. What's what's fascinating about how things broke out is that, you know, the, the tech billionaires became even more you know, even bigger protagonists than we ever yes. assumed. Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they all, you know, every single one of these people became a kind of superstar. Um, and that's interesting. I mean, that's n- not necessarily relevant to this movie, but it is interesting how we viewed technology back then and then how technology later presented itself. It almost had to present itself with the human face of Hey, I'm just a young guy who went to Harvard and and you know, yes. I want to just like do this and this is what me and yep. my friends do and you can be part of the party, you know. Um you know, also speaks to the fact that you know the 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 paranoia of the film hasn't entirely dissipated by the end because yes. we don't know who these people. It's kind of like the parallax view, right? Mm. I mean, with yeah. the film references at the end of the parallax view you're like <laughs> what what just happened you know we never got to the bottom of it you know um and and this is sort of like that i mean this is obviously the the happier version of that but it is kind (laughs) of like we still don't really know who did all this you know yeah Yeah. and you know at the end we we see the the kind of bearded gentleman who's in the airport who's pointing out uh the the pen leak 
you know, being the guy who kind of uh, helps Sean Penn sign the contracts yeah. and and yeah. pay. So we assume that he has a bigger role in this than than we see within the film, you know. Uh, and and there is still, I think, kind of that scariness, like that you're talking about. That it's you know, it's it's a happy ending, but it's not super happy because we realize we just went on this kind of elaborate fantasy where. Michael Douglas's character was taken for a ride and got all of his bank accounts drained and gave them all of his information willingly as a participant in this thing. And the cops aren't there to help him and no one else can be trusted. And you realize that all could have actually happened. <laughs> that's all plausible with like what was developed here in the game that was played. And all that's really, really missing is the malevolence to do that thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when you're talking about this movie maybe not being prophetic in terms of those kind of, you know, billionaire sort of actors being the, the faces of their companies and, and the sort of, you know, specters that all of these ideas are kind of built around the Elon Musk's and the Zuckerberg's and the Bill Gates's and all those. Uh, there is interestingly though, kind of a, a proxy for the sort of humanist element that corporations often present to us, right? Sort of like the corporate Memphis of the movie is James Rebhorn, right? Who plays just this sort of like affable kind of schlub. Mm -hmm. He's like, he never seems like he's totally in control of things. And he's doing fantastic work here, by the way. I oh, always love James Rebhorn, but he is terrific in this movie. He is. And you realize just like how manipulative he's being over the course of the movie but in the moment he seems so kind of haphazard you know he can't uh keep the forms and his chinese food in the same hand he has yeah. to have him hold it he's he's just kind of this bumbling kind of dweeby guy um but you realize yeah that there there is sort of that presentation in a lot of corporate kind of ideas right some like really kind of dark things that are about people's lives livelihoods their their financial well-being their emotional and mental security presented in this very cutesy kind of like aw shucks way yeah, to yeah. us very often yeah and, and 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 maybe that's you know while maybe the paranoia doesn't dissipate because we don't really know who's in charge of it but the fact that we don't ever meet any the person who's in charge of it one i think helps the film sort of endure because i'm just mm -hmm. trying to imagine like what if we did meet like what if there was you know i i, I don't know yeah um tommy lee jones as the head of crs shows up well, <laughs> it would have been just so weird you know like i i think i would have dated the movie in, in an in, an, mm -hmm. in, in yes. a fascinating way um but um but he uh you know i mean michael douglas at one point says you know i i you know, I want to go behind the curtain. I want to meet the wizard. And he never meets the wizard. But that's, yep. but that's also, I mean, as you know, Wizard of Oz is obviously not a, a grim, paranoid movie, but it in, in some ways not meeting the wizard is the best of all outcomes, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, James Rebhorn is great. We, we have to talk about the supporting cast in this movie. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Let's do that. Let's, I think we should start with, Maybe Sean Penn first. Yes. I, I want to get to Absolutely. some of the other ones, but Sean Penn in this movie, uh, and you mentioned this in your writing, Bilga, is in such kind of a thankless role. He really is a plot mechanism for most of this movie and gets a little bit of meat kind of in that that middle yeah. portion where he and, and Michael Douglas kind of duke it out and uh, add some texture to kind of the familial yeah. trauma that they've collectively experienced and had to wade through. 
but he does such wonderful work here. And it's so vital for that role to be oh, yeah. someone like a Sean Penn rather than a, a, a nothing kind of actor. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, and I think that that's the one reading over the thing I wrote. That's the one part of my piece where I feel like I, I mean, I'm sure there are other parts where I kind of failed to see something that was like staring me right in the face. Uh, but that one in particular, because, because in, in my, in my piece, I'm kind of like, I mean, I, I acknowledge that it has to be a Sean Penn because it has to be someone we're familiar with and kind of care mm-hmm. about because enough happens to this character. But I think beyond that, it actually has to be a really good actor doing that yes. part because every time we see him, he is giving a completely different performance. Right? Yes. I mean, when we first see him, he's kind of this like the, the insolent younger brother who is, you know, who's like cleaned up his act, but but is still sort of has this confrontational attitude towards his, you know, towards Michael Douglas. The next time we see him, he is in complete freak out mode and he needs help and he's desperate. I mean, that that great moment, they, they fuck you and they fuck you and they fuck you. And just when you think it's over, then they really start fucking. Then the real fucking begins, you know, like, I mean, he's so over the top. But then, you know, then suddenly he thinks that, you know, Michael Douglas is in on it, which, by the way, is like, you know, logic, logistically, it makes like zero sense because yes. like, why would he need to find this, you know, um, this drawer full of keys to like, if this is part of his the act, then he doesn't need like motivation, you know, or he doesn't need to find it. He can just pull it out of his pocket, you know. Um, but uh, but then he becomes like accusatory and then he runs off. And then the next time we see him, he is all sweetness and light. And I mean, it's just it's like three completely different characters uh, and three completely different actors almost. Um, and he nails each one. So you actually do, you know, as I was watching the film again last night, I was like, no, 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 no. You actually need like somebody as great an actor as Sean Penn to pull this off. You can't just get like some random person. And apparently like Jodie Foster was originally cast as this character, which is. Yeah. I oh, wow. Mean, she had two Oscars by this point. So, you know, like like they were they were gunning for like a big name for this part. Yeah, it was it was fascinating to read that, you know, Jodie Foster attached couldn't do it because of contact, which thank goodness, goodness. wonderful movie, wonderful performance, Uh, but that they initially wanted Jodie Foster to play Michael Douglas's daughter in in the the film. And uh, and then she, I think, kind of pushed back on it was like, can we make it like like a sister? Like, doesn't that kind of make more sense given like, (laughs) you know, our our age difference here? but yeah, it didn't work out, I guess, inevitably, and, and you get Sean Penn. But it was, uh, I, I think, very necessary to get somebody with those kind of chops to do the work in that role, despite how how little of that person we see. Trying to, like, that line, they fuck you and they fuck you and they... Like, I'm trying to imagine Jodie Foster saying that no. line. I'm like, <laughs> right. I would have loved to have read the script, like, when she was attached, because I'm sure some of that was different. I mean, she would have been great doing that stuff, but but that that feels like such a Sean Penn moment. You know? It does. Like, there is a... I mean, I always love seeing like what scripts look like before certain actors got attached to them because it, it often is quite different. The other reason it has to be a person like Sean Penn and why I think it works having him be a brother is like his investment, uh, you know, throughout the course of the film and his relationship, his sort of fraught relationship with with uh, Michael Douglas's character is also the thing that propels us forward and continues to make us emotionally involved in in the stakes like we're you know 
on Michael Douglas's side to a certain extent, but like there's a, the stakes are escalated when Sean Penn's character is involved. And I think like at the end in particular, the first ending, when Michael Douglas thinks that he has shot Sean Penn's character, um, that only really works as this literal moment of explosion and, and metaphorical moment of explosion because of the fight that they had um, a couple of scenes before when Michael Douglas is saying like, I never had a choice whether or not I like had to be your dad. I had to do that. And Sean Penn's character is saying like, I resent you for it. Like you, you didn't have to do that. I've always been lesser to you. And it's this really like, it's this really emotional exchange that is real. It's real for the characters. Um, even if in, you know, the diegesis of the game itself, it's, it's there to move things forward. There are real feelings that are attached, um, to that conversation. And we know that enough to know that when he kills him, when Michael Douglas kills Sean Penn's character, it is something he would be upset about and would be that despondent over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that. I mean, there's so much. I mean, that's another thing I love about the movie is that you know it gives you just enough to sort of set your mind racing about what this family dynamic must have been like, but it doesn't overdo it. Like you can kind of. I mean, it's just enough that you can sort of project. You know, we can project all our own bullshit onto it, which is yes. which is. <laughs> I mean, which is the great thing about you know certain films is that you know, they leave just enough of an opening for you to enter into it. And then, you know, and, and then it really comes, comes alive. Bilga, have you ever, Carly, have you ever in watching this perceived that maybe Sean Penn's character, that Connie has a little bit more stake in CRS than he lets on in this movie, that this is like an elaborate way to make some profit off of his brother. You know, you just kind of think about Say like, more about that. Well, we we know that they both come from considerable wealth. He obviously has quite a bit of it. He's able to kind of foot the bill, so to speak, in a way, you know, mm-hmm. at the end here in a way that that Michael Douglas's character maybe doesn't like uh, he doesn't scoff at it in a way that's like there's no way you can afford that. He's certainly kind of shocked by the by the dollar amount, but but not surprised that Connie is able to to cover the bill well, until he offers to split. He it. offers to split it is my point, yeah. uh, you know, that mm-hmm. he seems to have so much foreknowledge of Nicholas's life, his experiences, the iconography of his trauma. Uh, And we never do meet the man behind the curtain, you know, or maybe we do because he literally comes out of a figurative kind of like Uh. opening uh, on that rooftop. He's the first one Mm. to greet, you know, interesting. And so like, I don't think that there's anything nefarious or ugly going on here, but it is funny to think that maybe he's like the person who, has secretly founded CRS or is kind of like the big guy behind CRS. Uh, And, you know, when uh, Nicholas offers to split the costs, he's actually just taking money from his brother. I mean, it really only is a person of like incredibly old money and like, you know, a a great amount of wealth who could start a company like that and have the resources to, That's an interesting. That's an interesting idea. This, this is like my theory that that Michael Caine is behind everything that happens to Leonardo DiCaprio in Inception. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, this is. I mean, and keep, keep, please see. This is just like a, a 
you know, silly kind of pet theory. I don't know if I actually buy, buy my own idea here, but it is a very personal game to, to the Van Ortens. Uh, lots of knowledge there. Connie shows up at, at very important and precise moments within the game. We see that his nature is very much in kind of trying to get one over on his brother, especially in that opening kind of lunch scene. He keeps trying to open up his defenses a little bit. And he finally does get him at the end when he uh, gets the the staff there to sing him happy birthday yeah, and yeah. surprises him. And uh, yeah, we even the people who claim to have experienced it before we learn at the end are other actors in the crs game that we don't know whether or not anyone else has experienced an actual game in their lives yeah the the only indication we have that this is an actual thing is when she's when christine or whatever her actual name is says at the end oh you know we we have a game starting up in australia australia yeah yeah, um Mm -hmm. but again we don't really know. I mean, it's yeah. it's no. I mean, I did. Uh, I mean, that's the fun of stuff like this because there is so much, so much that's not. To, I, I mean, if they told you, there are so many things they have to not tell you because if they did tell you or if they explained certain things, it would make even less sense than before. Like they have to leave yes. enough things. I mean, that's the, the the beauty of this sort of thing is, in order for any of it to work, there's a lot of stuff that we're just never going to be told because I mean, obviously it doesn't exist. It's a fiction. Um, but because they don't tell us these things, our minds start racing. And and if they've done the job of sort of connecting things properly, then you can form theories about it and it'll all yes. connect because, because there is an internal logic to everything. So I yes. love that theory. I mean, that would make, I do that too. Makes, that makes, that makes lots of sense actually. You know, and and bless David Fincher for being somebody who is a perfectionist and incredibly meticulous in his executions, but he's not a pedant either, right? Right. He doesn't feel the need to over-explain things to us. He lets things kind of sit in the spaces there. Yeah. By the Uh, way, I just wanted to note, um, you mentioned Jonathan Mostow. I actually asked Jonathan Mostow about the game uh, when I interviewed him a couple of years ago, and uh, because I was interviewing him about Breakdown, and... um, and I was like, yeah, it's, it's like the same movie. And he's like, oh, it's exactly the same movie. <laughs> like his whole thing, like when he was writing Breakdown, he's like, I'm just going to make the game, but with trucks, you know? And the, Oh my gosh. You know, and, and like a more sinister bad guy. Um, but yeah, no, he, in his mind, it's like basically he took all the energy from the game and just put it into Breakdown. I love that. I'll, I'll have to go back to that episode we did with our, our friends from uh, Parents Just Don't Understand and, and Potside Picnic. But I know that I read your interview with Mostow before that show. So maybe I, I brought that little factoid into our conversation about I, it. I don't you did, actually. I don't remember if it had made the actual interview. Uh, so it did. I, I, I haven't read, read that interview. I, you know, I, I can't recall, I but I do know that we were... We yeah. were definitely making the the connections between right. the game and breakdown at yeah, the time. Yeah, I mean, it's, the... it's all there. It's all there. Mostow, I mean, it would have been interesting to see his version. Obviously, the Fincher film is great. Um, and I'm glad Mostow made breakdown instead. But he is a fascinating director. Uh, well, we were talking about Sean Penn and his few scenes and how adeptly he handles the change in kind of character motivations, the way he's playing that off. Mm-hmm. And he does a wonderful job with it. But I think the sort of unsung hero of that and the person who does the most work with it in the entire film is Deborah Kara Unger as Christine. Yeah. Yes. Uh, phenomenal actress. Unfortunately, not a not a big career. You know, there yeah. was that moment there kind of in the, the mid to late 90s where she was pretty transcendent. She's yeah. incredible in Crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she's even better here. 
but she is the person too, where in in not just scene to scene, but even within one scene, has to turn on a dime and shift between particular motivations. You know, is she a, a hapless participant? Is she actually in on it? But like now she's you know regretful and remorseful about this thing, or is she pretending to be remorseful? in order to get more information and pry and still yeah. be the bad guy in all of this. It's, it's a very committed and very interesting performance. Yeah. And, and also I think, um, I mean, you know, obviously she'd done crash. Uh, what was the other movie she'd done? She, she was in uh, another movie that like was sort of racy. Um, mm-hmm. I'm blanking on it. Um, but you know, I think casting her, uh, in this part, opposite michael douglas whose whole career was just like <laughs> romancing <laughs> romancing blonde femme fatales um, yes and, and like but then like having like chemistry between them but not any actual like you know like having the that possibility hovering over their scenes together as almost this like menacing thing right because i mean mm-hmm. there's a scene later where, where you know he finds the pictures in the hotel room and yes. porn and all that like this whole idea of like his you know the fact that he's repressed and hasn't really kind of lived his life and then you know and then she's sort of his like, like guide through this whole machinery like i think it's an inspired bit of casting and i, I think it's it's great that like nothing happens between them um but it is kind of like you're almost expecting it. I think in 1997 you would have been expecting it. Today, I think yes. people would be shocked if they got together. But, um, but back then it was kind of like, huh, interesting. Oh wow, they're not gonna like kiss. Okay, you know. Um, but, um, but yeah, no. And she's, but she's so. I mean, she's she's great. She really is great. And she, her thing is, she's like the opposite of Sean Penn though, because Sean Penn in each, each time he appears, like I said, is giving a completely different performance and i think that's sort of what's required of of his character she is always giving the same performance like she's always in her like she's always like in her like deborah cara unger mode you know isn't like incredibly um overexcited over emotions right that sort of weird you know sort of I don't want to say sultry, but that sort of alluring, you know, soft-spoken quality to her throughout the whole movie. Um, and yet every time we read it differently, like we we read her differently as opposed to her giving a different performance each time. Yes. Uh, which I think is, you know, quite an accomplishment for an actor. Yeah, it's seamless. It's like this she's this snake that just sort of like winds through this story mm-hmm. and what I love about the casting of her in particular is that it's believable to me that she could be like this working class waitress type um, and also like a person who could be involved in some like elaborate con. Like yeah. she she fits uh, like all of that, uh, everything in between those two things. Um, and also that there's like an innocence to her that like she could be just like a person who like got swept away in the whole thing. And what I love about their character dynamic is back to this idea of of his passivity and his sort of like, you know, l- lack of living, whether it's because of 
it's necessary for the the forward propulsion of the game or if it's you know her her character or some combination of both she's literally always the person who takes the first step in right. whatever they're doing and michael douglas is sort of like haplessly like following after her um and she's the one setting the pace she's the one setting the tone she's the one being agent and saying like okay no we're going to I'm getting in this elevator. Okay. Now we're climbing out of this thing. Now mm-hmm. we're jumping down into these dumpsters. Like yeah. I, I liked that e- even as it's him trying to pull the curtain back and he mm-hmm. shifts from being this victim to now the predator at the end of the, f- of the film, he's still following her the whole yeah. time. And she is perfectly cast in that role. I, there are a few other women, uh, who I think could pull that type of character off yeah. and have it be believable and still have you feel like emotionally invested in the whole thing. Yeah. There's a, there's a kind of, um, th- this is probably the wrong word, but there's a certain anonymity to her. I think part of it is because she's, she wasn't like a huge, I mean, obviously she'd done crash and I mean, she was kind of a breakout star at the time, but, but she hadn't done like she, a Sharon Stone couldn't do this. Like we'd be like, oh, right. what the, you know, what's going on with her? You know. Whereas somebody <laughs> like Deborah Kerr Unger, it's like, oh, she's the waitress. Oh, wait, no, maybe there's more. Oh, you know, oh, maybe she. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, she's just kind of caught in the middle of this. Oh, no, no, she's controlling it. No, 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 no. She's just the lady with the clipboard. You know, and at the end, she's like, she's getting in the cab. She's she's off to do another one of these. Yeah, right. we never quite know where she fits in the whole CRS thing. Like she's like a mid ma- mid level manager. She's never quite right. like she has enough <laughs> femme fatale to her, but she is never like the person behind it all. I mean, I, like she remains kind of a working gal throughout the whole movie. It's just, yeah. you just yeah. never know she who does. she's working for. Uh, you, you mentioned Bilga, you know, that, that someone like a Sharon Stone couldn't play this role. And what's funny is, you know, she, she had a chance to play something kind of like this, in Verhoeven's Total Recall, right, and you er, and you see the distinctions, yeah. yeah, that 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 she's so much more kind of bombastic. That her, her turn is also much more uh, distinct, right? Going from like the the lovable kind of like wife to the villain in that movie, she doesn't play that middle ground quite as strongly here. She, um, she, she's a broader actor in general, um, and and she's very good, you know doing that sort of thing like she's she's a much more larger than life figure when she acts whenever she yeah exactly total recall is a perfect example of that where like she walks into total recall and you're just like who is that you know she just like occupies so much space you know so much just emotional space whereas you need this person to kind of disappear into the background a little bit Mm -hmm. yeah she has a a very wonderful kind of way of doing that in two of my favorite scenes in the movie. Uh, one of which she's actually technically in and the other one she's just sort of implicated in. Uh, the first of which is uh, that aforementioned hotel scene where he mm-hmm. goes to the Hotel Nico and finds this uh, the, the remnants of this night of debauchery. Yeah. And what I love so much about it is that as you mentioned, Bilga, she, Deborah Kara Unger's character and, and Michael Douglas's character have not yet engaged in any sort of like solicitous act there's there's been some chemistry and attraction we have the kind of teases of her saying that she's not wearing underwear when they're trying to get out of the elevator but it's all sort of you know that kind of interior fantasy that the audience is playing with and probably michael douglas's character too i mean she does take her shirt off in front of him and reveals a red bra yes she does do that but even so you know there's no like uh there's no actual like romantic gesture 
that that either of them participate in specifically and and intentionally. Uh, and then we get into that room, and it it feels a lot like other parts of this movie, like uh, like Michael Douglas's interior sort of monologue, like his sort of fantasies being laid bare, and and him being incredibly vulnerable. And you know, talk about fortuitousness here. I don't think that scene would be as effective and look the way it does if we had not gotten seven before this and gotten that Leland Orser scene with the Polaroids yes, 100%. and the, oh, the brothel. Right. Yeah. Um, 100%. It, it has a very similar aesthetic kind of quality to it. And, and the sort of like illicit nature of it is all implied just in those close-ups of the photographs and the right. sound of the, the pornography on the television, the close-ups of the blood. Right. Um, but, but that scene, I just, I just love it. It's so kind of like terrifying and it's a fun way that I think, Fincher is both implicating Nick and the audience and saying, you've thought about this. This is the kind of thing you wanted to see. Well, well, here it was, but you didn't see it. And did it even happen? Question mark is the other part of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, and of course it's also, I mean, that, that scene is there within sort of the, the, the chronology and narrative logic of, of the, the film. It's there because, I mean, he sees the red bra when she takes off her shirt and then he sees those pictures. He sees the pictures of the red bra and that makes him go find her. Right. Because he has to find her in order for the next stage of the game to begin. Um, But like they're leading you along too. like you're like, oh, oh, it's her. It's her. You know, like, go get her. Like, you you know, he goes and I mean, it's like so (laughs) you're like it's working on Michael Douglas, but it's also working on us. And and it leads into my uh, another one of my favorite scenes that you mentioned when he when he is propelled along this particular trajectory and goes and visits uh, her character at her apartment. I love this scene. And you slowly realize that the entire interior of this house is a is a facade. Right. Uh, there are price tags still on the furniture. There's no running water. And my favorite moment when he opens up the bookcases and just yeah. pushes over. The, these you know kind of cardboard cutouts of yeah. books, these sort of embossments made to look like uh, a bookshelf that's been filled. But it's like it's 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 a it's a it's a phony of a phony, right? I mean, it's like it's yes. it's yes. phony s- s- for him to discover that it's a phony. Um, yes, because it's like who leaves a fucking price? Like presumably, CRS is way too good at its job than to leave like a, a, a you know. A, a price tag on a lamp. Um, yes, <laughs> but that's also uh, you know. I, I mean, it also has that great little moment, which which I'm convinced is a. I mean, there are a couple of references to the conversation in this movie. I think, but mm. you know, the um the Virgin Mary with the head off because yes, yes, you know, that's like the Virgin Mary that that Gene Hackman breaks at the end of um mm-hmm. the conversation. Uh, but then also, obviously, uh, earlier in the hotel, uh, you get the the overflowing toilet yes Um, and uh you know in in so many ways i mean the conversation great movie masterpiece but just as ridiculous as the game (laughs) you know like like, also makes no actual sense um but you know i mean it has it has the dream logic so so we, we go with it uh, whereas this one is just like, well, you know, they were all, it's all, it's all meant to be fake. You know, anything you think in the movie is fake, not a mistake on the f- part of the filmmakers. It's just, it was supposed to be that way, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the conversation because now we can talk about this being a San Francisco movie. Yes. Which the conversation also is. Yes. Another fantastic San Francisco movie. This is an excellent San Francisco movie. Oh. And more so than anything, I think it's a fantastic San Francisco movie about San Francisco in the 90s, mm-hmm. which which pre- predates when I lived here. But but you certainly knew it, Carly, during mm-hmm. the 90s. Yep. Uh, and there are some things that I absolutely recognize. I recognize uh, the, the final shots of the movie, in fact, are outside of a hotel whose name now I can't remember. Uh, very famous right there on Montgomery Street across from uh, one of the oldest bars in the city, House of Shields. Yep. Uh, famously in our household. One of the first places Carly and I ever uh, spent an evening together was at that bar. Oh, yes, House it of was. Shields. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so, so there's some, some recognizable places there. There's the, the kind of Stockton uh, tunnel and, and uh, area there, which makes appearances in lots of other movies, California street and the trolley cars. Uh, but there are definitely things about it that feel very specifically of this era that, uh, that kind of exist in that again, sort of, space between uh, the old and the new. What is it about San Francisco that sets everybody's mind on edge with paranoia? I mean, <laughs> is it yeah. like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> all of them. I mean, the conversation, all of them. Vertigo. Um, Godzilla is San Francisco. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm throwing Planet ones out. Planet of the out Apes. Now. Planet of the Apes, yeah. Um, yeah, I but, mean, yeah, and all the Finchers, obviously. I mean, Zodiac, obviously. Yes. Uh, yep. I, I mean, it's it's just, but it is like, I was just thinking of um, the Green Fog, the Guy Madden's yeah, the Green Fog, uh-huh. which 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 I actually saw at the at its premiere at the San Francisco Film Festival. Um, oh my gosh! Years ago. And um, and I mean, it's just that film is also. St- just steeped in paranoia. Um, I mean, it's all clips, obviously, of San Francisco movies, but it is just, you know, it makes you realize just how utterly paranoid San Francisco is. And what is it about San Francisco that, that like, prompts that? I don't even know. There's this really interesting sort of life that this city has that is distinct from New York, right, mm-hmm. which has its its story sort of rooted in, like, the history of of this country coming to be it's mm-hmm. where a lot of immigrants came over right. it's it's a it's an old city it's a european city in america san francisco is is like this place where it's sort of the apex of manifest destiny you know mm-hmm. we sort of came out far, as far west as we could um the gold rush is like here that's like Mm -hmm. why people came to this area um this promise of wealth and then it it sort of like delivered on that it was a place for a very long time where like only rich people lived um and a lot of the victorians that are in san francisco have this feel of like older money that's kind of now something else Mm -hmm. um and so the whole city has like has like this air of of like ghosts mm. ghosts like promises that like didn't come to fruition or like did and now there's something else all of this to say when you ask like what is it about the city that inspires paranoia i think it is this idea of like promise always mm. existing here yeah. and and it's sort of like coming to fruition but coming to fruition in a way that um, 
you know, maybe is a little bit darker than what you're anticipating. The gold rush famously, and there was a, a huge fire at the turn of the century in San Francisco, and we had this massive earthquake at the end of the 80s. There's just a lot of um a lot of like literal broken promises that live in this city. And so it is this kind of perfect place to set a thriller where you are questioning what reality is constantly um, because it's kind of haunted with that idea. Yeah. There is, there's something kind of haunting about San Francisco too. Like in a previous paradigm of Aaron, uh, (laughs) I spent a lot of time in San Francisco very late at night walking around. Uh, and unlike New York City, which feels like there's sort of like in electricity and liveliness and people out at every hour of the day, after about 2 a.m. here in San Francisco, it feels lifeless and quiet in a way that a city should not. Mm. And there's always this kind of undergirding sort of pretext to that that implies that surely there's the same impulse in this big city as there is in other ones with later evenings. But wherever that exists, it's happening underground. It's happening somewhere out of sight. And I think that kind of idea of all of these sort of labyrinths and a lot of these kind of places hidden from like the broader eye where there is this kind of activity always bustling, all this kind of stuff just sort of surging underneath the surface gives this kind of air of there's something not quite right here. Mm. And as soon as I uncover it and look behind, you know, one of these doors and down this alleyway, I'm going to find it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess, I mean, you guys are right. It's it's a it's a city that's sort of, um, you know, it, it exists within the mythology of the West and the Western. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, more so than I mean, more so than other cities. I mean, you know, Los Angeles, I don't think of as having any kind of connection to the Western. I do think of San Francisco having, you know, yeah. um, and it is kind of the logical endpoint, but it's also an, an, an urban space. So it's like all that stuff gets mixed into into the idea um, in a way that I can't imagine other cities like, you know, I mean, you know, what are the other cities that show up in, in Westerns, you know, like actual cities, right. you know, right. um, I don't know, probably um, or Portland. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> Houston. I mean, those are not, they, they don't, they don't, they don't present as cities in, in within the mythology of the Western San Francisco is kind of the only one. Um, you know, Fincher being like a San Francisco filmmaker is obviously steeped in this stuff and and and, and understands it. I, I think on on a visceral level, uh, which is also why, you know, the the game beyond just being, I think, just a you know really effective thriller is like a compendium of references to other thrillers, some from San mm-hmm. Francisco. But, yes, you know, I mean, it's just it's just like, you know, he he just he just you know, but and it but it doesn't feel like. Like you don't watch it thinking, oh, that's a reference to that. That's a reference to that. It it, it all kind of moves right. very organically, but it's all there. And every time you watch it, you're like, oh, hey, right, Vertigo, uh, you know, um, Maltese Falcon, whatever. You know, it's just it's kind of a fascinating. Um, you know, it's it's a great film that f- for a cinephile to have made. You know, like yes. he he. You know, you understand that like the person who made this not only knows how to make a movie, but also understands film history. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of strange to say that you know a, a filmmaker made almost like a greatest hits kind of compendium or like a you know a, a singles compilation at the beginning of his career. Yeah. But it kind of feels like that. You know, it it does sort of imply a lot of the things that he was working on with Alien Three and with Seven, 
and a lot of the fixations and a lot of the, the kind of practices technically that he would employ to different ends in all of the films that follow. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really like it is kind of him setting the stage for the rest of his career, even though it's not, you know, it's not a script that he originated. You know, he, like as we've noted, has a kind of ambivalent relationship to it. But but like all the themes are there. The, the future, like the future David Fincher movies are all kind of lurking in the game. Um, even Mank. <laughs> even Mank. <laughs> There's even a bit of Mank in there. Uh, <sighs> The, the Which, one feature the way, I, I have is, yet to watch. Mank, oh, really? Mank existed at this time, I believe, because his dad had written the script. I think it's oh, wow. right around this time. I think, believe it or not, I think Fincher has the idea of making Mank right after Seven. Uh, so, so the oh, you're screenplay, kidding. some form of the screenplay, I think, exists back then. Um, wow. So that's like already on his mind. <laughs> Uh, while we're talking about San Francisco movies, I do have to mention one that we forgot about in, in the paranoid thriller kind of context, uh, a, a hit factory reclamation project for now, like almost a year, uh, which is William Friedkin's Jade. Yes. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> I actually, uh, I, I, I rewatched Jade uh, because of, of you guys. Uh, and, um, and I liked it better this time. I still don't love it, but... <laughs> Yeah, I had such. I mean, I I had such high hopes for Jade at the time. I was like, "He's back! Freaking is back, baby!" <laughs> um, and you know, there's you know, it's 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 the, actually she could have played this part too. Linda um, Fiorentino, Linda absolutely. Linda Fiorentino could have could have could have played this. I mean, again, Deborah Karanger is great. Not to take anything, away, but like she is maybe the other actress I'm thinking of who could have perhaps pulled this off. Yeah, I'm thinking about her in like After Hours where she's like so insanely seductive, but yes. also you can't quite tell whether or not she's like sexually interested. What's her yeah. fucking deal? In, yeah, the whole time you're like, are you into like past plaster of Paris? Like, are you what? what's happening? Yeah, here? yeah she, she would have done great work with this one. This would have been a fun one to see her in. Absolutely. She was doing Men in Black at this time instead, pissing off yeah. Tommy Lee Jones, I guess. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. And Will Smith, <laughs> and Will Smith who both apparently. refused to work with her again. Yeah. Really? Uh, oh, I don't know this story. You know, it, we we talk a Tragedy. lot on on the episode, and I actually more so I think on our episode about the last seduction, just about oh, kind sure. of this conceit of of the difficult actress specifically, mm. and and how sort of gendered that kind of concept is. How sure. how we often give men uh, who are you know kind of uh, capital S serious actors a pass in terms of their kind of bad behavior or or the friction that they kind of cause. Uh, and with someone like Linda Fiorentino, who seems to be a person who takes her work just as seriously, it was sort of a a scarlet letter on her career right. and, and sure. on her work. But uh, yeah, I agree. I think she could have done a good job with this. Can I uh, get you something to drink with this? Is this you? Oh, yeah, that's uh, First Communion. Show it to me. What's wrong? Take the picture out of the frame and show it to me. Drive or something. We can. No, no, no. I am tired of this. I am goddamn we'll, tired we'll of go this. We'll go for a drink. There's a. Who do you people think you are? Who do you think you are? Come. 
Nicholas, come on out of there. Nicholas, please. Let's go right now. Come on, let's come out of there right now. In talking about this movie, and, and I think we're coming close to the, the close of our, our thoughts here, maybe, but I, I was thinking again about what we kind of mentioned at the beginning of this film in terms of Fincher as sort of the perfect person to do this kind of movie and the way it sort of played out at a perfect time in his career and a perfect time in the 90s for it to be received. And I was finding myself really impressed as I was watching it as Carly mentioned earlier too, given my politics, given the, the perspectives of the 2020s, how endeared I was to it and how much I found myself resonating with, with Michael Douglas's character and his trauma and his experience. And I think it's, it's an interesting indicator of one of the things that's lacking in some of these kinds of movies in our present era. Uh, I, I mentioned a few of these movies that sort of turn the tables and, and take things from maybe the worker's perspective on the elite. And I think my biggest problem, my biggest issue with a lot of those films is the way in which it often shows its main characters, its protagonists as people with challenges, as people with traumas to overcome, but it doesn't show them as fundamentally flawed people very often. It often puts up kind of this moral sort of dichotomy between the haves and the have-nots and the haves being the ones who are sort of deeply corrupted at their core. Mm -hmm. And Fincher is someone who has said many times his perspective on art and his perspective on life is that we're all kind of perverts at the end yeah. of the day. And I think that that's what makes this movie really enjoyable to me is there is sort of a, uh, a sort of schadenfreude like kind of thing going on here where there is a delight sort of in seeing this guy get a little bit of a comeuppance and get kind of batted around a little bit mm -hmm. but we also see him for who he is and we see the kind of helpless infantile character underneath that facade and something resonates there we find that kind of humanity in him yeah. and and i just find that very powerful and i think it's why the movie feels like it has endured and will continue to endure yeah, I mean, you, you don't think of it as a humanist movie, right? But 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 it is. I mean, it's it's you know all art should be humanist on some level. But it is. Um, yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, and and that's one of those things that that I am always wrestling with. You know, watching films today, where it's kind of like you know the flaws that characters are allowed to have it's like such a sort of limited list of these are the acceptable flaws you know like they can kind yes. of be, like, they can be a bit of a jerk and they you know i mean it's like and it's it is interesting how um i mean look there are plenty of great movies it's not like there aren't good films being made but but it is funny how like i feel like there is something very limiting about the way characters are allowed to be portrayed today and it's not necessarily about like how they might 
you know, you know, they can't be racist or anything like, like, yeah, they shouldn't be racist. Like that's, we don't want that, you know, but, but, but it is, <laughs> yeah. but, but I do feel like, you know, screenwriters, filmmakers, artists of all types are sometimes, sometimes afraid to let things be uh, uh, uncomfortable, you know, like yes. uh, mm-hmm. they're afraid of making the audience uncomfortable. And some of that I think has to do with the way, I think it has to do a lot with the way we consume this stuff because um, because so much stuff is not just streaming, but like readily available, not just to watch, but also to turn off, right? Yes. And, and the I, they're worried about making people uncomfortable because they're worried that it's too easy to just like turn it off. So, oh my God, I can't watch that or I don't want to listen to this person anymore. Um, and so you sort of have to, you know, kind of ride this very fine line in order to get, you know, to get characters from point A to point B to point C without, without quote unquote alienating the viewer. Whereas, you know, I mean, back then, of course, we had videotapes, we had DVDs and all that, but like those were things you rented or bought, like you had paid money for. So you were kind of going to stick with it as much as you yep. could. The mm-hmm. idea of everything just being readily available is, is, you know, it's, 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 it's just, you know, it's, it's so much easier to just switch to something else. Um, and the idea, I mean, one of the things that I love about movies is like, you're trapped, <laughs> you're, you're there, yes. you know, like, I love the term, uh, when I used to work in like, briefly in sort of rights management and stuff like that, you know, there's that term captive audience, which is what yes. they refer to, um, yep. you know, like films on planes and stuff like that um (laughs) but i'm like wait we should all be captive audiences like a you know like that's the whole point you're there you paid your money and unless the movie really fucking pisses you off you're not gonna leave um so you're kind of stuck with you're stuck with this jerk (laughs) you know you're stuck with this person who does (laughs) things you don't like and don't approve of and but hopefully by the end of the movie we all get somewhere you know we all get somewhere interesting or hopeful or cathartic or whatever and that's what makes it beautiful, you know? I do think that that is something that it's like a subtle change in how we how we process these characters because because of a much less subtle change in how we watch these things, you know? I think you're 100% correct on that. I think it is the way we consume media and art. And I also think it's that our lives have become increasingly more uncomfortable like just every day and so there is more of a desire to limit the amount of discomfort I experience even if it's just sort of in my consumption choices um but I'm glad we're we're ending on this conversation because um what you're talking about Bilga this idea that like you know artists now might be a little bit more limited in in the the spaces they can push into because there's this idea of discomfort and we don't want to we don't want to go there makes me think um of a movie that uh I really love that I think you loved also Blonde. Yes. Um, I was thinking of Blonde actually. Yeah, when I was <laughs> Which is like I I was in pieces at the end of that movie. I was just utterly destroyed i i had never ever cried that hard for marilyn monroe in my entire life and the only reason i got there is because of the places the movie went yeah and so like when we're talking about 
in the case of the game, you making the great point that, you know, the reason it feels so connecting, the reason it feels so enduring is because it takes us to a place where we kind of are broken down a little bit. And then we're in this vulnerability Mm -hmm. that allows us to really emotionally connect with this character in ways we might not have had we not been uncomfortable. And that's what makes one of the reasons that I think blonde works so well and worked well on me is because you are really just destroyed right along with her and you can't help but cry at the end of that movie. Um, And with this film too, it's like, you're you're invested in the mystery yes but you really are just invested in michael douglas's character Mm -hmm. and and you are um you are in a place of vulnerability with him not only because he is a flawed character and shown to be one but he's also being systematically broken down so he's flawed to begin with and then he's also just like being taken down a peg like at every turn and it is incredibly uncomfortable um not to mention paranoia inducing and you you end the, the movie the way that you do and it's maybe ridiculous yes but it is cathartic and it is this like feeling of elation that is only as potent as it is because of how uncomfortable and like distraught and uh and terrified you are for the rest of the film and you need to experience that discomfort for the ending to really work yeah i mean and 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 this is a a thing that I think the film does in terms of, I mean, we talked about trauma, but like sort of reenacting the trauma, right. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and sort of, you know, how we process it as, as people, I think, you know, this, this was in my piece. um, And I, and I remember at the time I I did a bunch of, a bit of research into this, but like the idea of reenacting something to, to get past it. Right. Because, because your mind sort of, you know, at first it's, you're terrified and then you're you're looking for um you're looking for assistance and then you don't find the assistance then you fight back and then and then you're finally defeated and you know it it, it, in the in the trauma version of it you're 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 ruined by it right but in this version of it you're defeated you step out on the ledge you throw yourself over and suddenly you know, the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to you happens. <laughs> You're yes. in the middle of your birthday party. Um, and and by reenacting sort of all the things that he, his, this, you know, Nicholas Van Orton's character sort of lived through as a child, reenacting that trauma, it helps him get past it. Um, so, you know, they have to break him down. And, and I think this is another thing I noted is like those little snippets we see, those home movie snippets we see of the party you know that that he has there are little things in there that all become elements in the movie right yes um you know there's the clown there's the ice cream and then there's apparently there was a scene that was cut from the final final film of um a woman in a boat apparently saved him at one point after i think after maybe after the, the cab fell into the water apparently this was a scene i don't know if it was ever shot but it was in the script they cut it out um and, and apparently she tries to seduce him. This is another thing, you know, the, the woman in the boat tries to seduce him. And then she, there's something she says like, wait, I thought, you know, they said you like this sort of thing, you know, because because he rejects her, which all which also fits into the whole sort of weird, you know, 
sexual dynamics of the movie. But mm-hmm. um, but you know, there's a the little shot of the boats from the kid children's party early on. So these yes. are all little elements because because that party, the footage of that party, then leads to the footage of his father killing himself. So it's all kind of of a piece. And then the movie sort of reenacts all that, carries him through all that, puts us through all that, and then something happy happens at the end of it. So you know he's able to move past it, and we are able to move past our trauma, whatever that may be. Um, yes. So I think that's an interesting, you know, I think that's an interesting thing the film does structurally. But no, you're right. I mean, just getting back to Blonde, I you know I saw Blonde at the Venice Film Festival, and I, I saw it in the theater, um, and. There, you know, that was the movie I cried the most during. You know, I, I'm I'm yes. a crier. I, I cry a lot during movies, but, but some movies <laughs> I cry at more. Uh, and Blonde was just—I actually had to because I was, you know, I still wear a mask in, in theaters, and um, I had to change my mask because it was so soaked because I oh cried God. so hard. Oh no! Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, you know, I, I rewatched Blonde a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, still good, still good. I, you know, one still of these good. days, I, I think it'll be reclaimed, but we'll see. I'm right there with you. I mean, Aaron will tell you, I, I cried for a solid half hour after that movie ended. I just was like, don't talk to me. Don't touch me. Don't look at me. I just need to like feel my feelings mm-hmm. for this woman. And what a remarkable thing to do to take a person that has been so abstracted mm-hmm. to the point of just being iconography and make me feel her humanity again. Yeah. I won't make this a, a an episode about blonde. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> that well, that's yes. what I loved about uh, Colin Farrell's little little thing at the Golden Globes. Yes, when, yes. Because not only not only did he make a point of praising her performance and the film, but he also made it clear that he watched it to the end. <laughs> to the yes. end. <laughs> yes. And he saw the final, final images. Scene. Bless yeah. him. <laughs> and he's right. That is one of the most devastating parts of the ending. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I know we said we we're going to wrap, but I, I do want to talk a little bit more about this uh, this concept that you bring up, this sort of uh, recreation and play through of this traumatic experience and the sort of levels of it. Um, I had a similar kind of sensation with this movie, and I think why I really gravitated toward on, on this watch, which is, uh, you know, I, I have experience with with recovery, you know, mm-hmm. with with uh, addiction and, and alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And there is something kind of interesting about this movie about where Nick Van Orton starts as sort of this hollow shell of a, a man, this sort of infantile kind of quality to him that yeah. that really resonated with me as somebody who struggled with with that kind of like insularity of addiction yeah. and the catharsis that he kind of arrives at. And, you know, that idea of like the progress, not perfection in this right by the end, he's not made a good person. Yeah. He's given the opportunity to live. Yeah. And uh, so many just like little moments to me that kind of resonated and felt very much like a trajectory of recovery. The amends making specifically with his with his ex-wife. Yes. That scene is a very powerful moment in the movie. And one of the more emotional scenes I've seen in a Fincher movie, frankly, you know, it's one where he kind of lets go of that sort of steely resolve a little bit. Mm -hmm. And and his just flat apology. He looks her in the eyes. He like says, I'm sorry for my distance. I'm sorry for the way I treated you that I wasn't there and I hope you'll forgive me. Yeah. And it's like, it's a real apology, right? It's not, it's not yeah. excuse making or anything. It's just asking, I hope you'll find a way to forgive me for the thing I did wrong. Yeah. And you know, it, it, it plays a great deal in, in the feelings of shame that, that Van Orton is feeling and, and the ways that those can also lead to a catharsis. And I, I think that 
one of the the statements from Fincher on the movie that really resonated with me is his perspective on the ending and his perspective on sort of the kind of if if there is any sort of moral in the film, uh, what the moral might be. And he says that he wanted to make a movie where he put your greatest fears right up to your face mm-hmm. and have you face them and confront them and show you it's all okay. You're still here. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a big part of, of those journeys when it comes to, you know, breaking away from and finding a life after, after drugs and alcohol that I, I just found really special. And, uh, for the first time found like maybe an emotional tenor in, in David Fincher's films that, mm. that I think that he sometimes shies away from his other movies. I, I still revel in, I delight in, I love kind of how evil Gone Girl is, you know, like mm-hmm. that's fun for me. Yeah. Um, but this is one for me where I I watched it and I was like, there's a warmth here that he kind of denies himself in other movies that m- makes me latch on to this, even despite whatever, you know, kind of criticisms I have of it on a on a technical or narrative level. And there aren't many, you know, but mm. but it just made it feel very special in that way to me. Yeah, it's 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 maybe I'm trying to think over his career. It, it's one of the few films he has where the audience surrogate is the protagonist, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you can relate to this character. I mean, you can relate to all his, I mean, I love Fincher. You can relate to all his characters, but it's, it's, but they're always such specific characters, right? Um, and the things they're doing are in many ways, uh, they're more active characters and, and things they're doing are, you know, you, you can judge them on those levels. Whereas this one is kind of like, this guy is really supposed to be us on some level right mm-hmm. uh and i don't know that i mean i think maybe you know edward norton's character in fight club but but you know it's not a his his filmography doesn't turn on that sort of identification you know it's much more about sort of, of the the very precise nature of of the, the stories that he's telling i mean zodiac maybe but even zodiac you know everybody's a little too quirky and fucked up to, to really yes. work as audience <laughs> surrogates but you know um yeah, no, he's uh the more movies he makes, the more this one stands out in a weird way. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. I think and I think feels greater and greater, you know? Um and and it's funny. I mean, I that we talked about this, but but it is it is funny that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't rate it as much and and I can totally understand why, but I'm like, yeah, but you keep making the same movie over and over again and here's the one that actually feels a little different. Yeah, I love that. It, it, I have a uh, Twitter mutual who has some of the most bizarre movie opinions I've ever read. Um, maintains that the Terminal is uh, the best Steven Spielberg film. Wait, who is uh, this mutual? And... Do we... is, is it <laughs> I'm a... not gonna. I'm not gonna call him out on on here, but I will share him with you, okay. Bilga, later. Uh, but <laughs> but for too. probably, but uh, but for a little while now, he has been telling me uh, that. The game is Fincher's best movie, bar none. And I is this mutual me? No. no. Well, I was gonna say I, I you know, I, I, I kind of tacked it up to a, you know, another kind of bizarre opinion from from a friend here. Uh, and then I watched it this time, and I'm like, is he on to something? Did he figure out that there is this kind of frequency that this one's on, where it makes it an outlier? Like, whether it's his, you know, best depends, I think, on your evaluation of what the things are that make a Fincher film special, but. I think you're absolutely right, Boga, that it is a, a film that remains very singular in his filmography uh, in the best ways. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
I, yeah, I love it, and and I I I I love watching it, and it reveals new things every time. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just like the little mechanics of the of the screenplay or or, or just the filmmaking. I mean, we, we talked about this, but it is a it it is very much a chance for him to flex his his muscles and to show you what he can do. I, I, every time I watch it, I I I marvel at how well told the story like there's so many little things that have to work in yes. every given moment of this movie for us to buy the next thing that happens in it you know it's 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 a surprisingly delicate structure uh you know like one or two pieces out of place and the whole thing would fall apart um and i think that that's yeah that's a real achievement you know it is it's technically pristine as far as i'm concerned i think like the third act problems that, you know, people argue may be there are not there for me. I think it's a, a a really perfectly told story and just an incredible movie watching experience. As you said, even like at home, I was like having the, the best time <laughs> watching this movie and in a theater um, even more so. I'm I'm really glad that you you suggested we do this one, Bilga, because um, it is my favorite Fincher. Awesome. Whether or not yeah. it's his best, like we can let the listener decide yeah. their their view on that. But it is my favorite Fincher. Not, not his most successful film. Probably not the one that's rated uh, his best by the sort of popular uh, opinion. But one that I think has uh, been raised in my estimation on this rewatch. And of course, over the course of this conversation with you, sir, Bill Gabiri. Thank you so very much for joining us on Hit Factory today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. This was great. I will say, you know what it is? It's his Jackie Brown. <laughs> Ooh. Yes. Jackie Brown. That's what it's it is. It's 100% his Jackie Brown. There we go. That's that's our nugget. That's our pitch to the audience. Uh, that That's our marketing kind of kind of. That's uh, Bilga's next tweet. Angle right now. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Bilga, uh, thank you again. Where can uh, Where can people find you and your work around the internet? Um, most of my stuff is at vulture.com, uh, and I occasionally write for other places, uh, but, but that's, those are the people that employ me. <laughs> um, so that's the place <laughs> to go. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can find me on Twitter at Bilga Ibiri. Terrific. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention one of your latest reviews at Vulture that has us uh, very excited for a mid-budget January release. Uh, uh hopefully a new classic in the hot dads pursuing justice canon, one of My Carly's favorite, favorite. canon, <laughs> uh, plane with Gerard Butler. Plane is plane is terrific. Uh, God bless January. I'm so glad the January movie is back. I think yes, yes. Uh, you know the August movie uh, died uh, a, a sad death uh, <laughs> last year, uh, but the fact that the January movie is back gives me hope. Yes, we've still got them playing. I'm I'm excited to watch it. Your review has us uh, just absolutely itching to <laughs> to to get to it. So, uh, thank you so much again, Bilga Beery. From our end of things, you can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, subscribe to the show at our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Hit Factory Pod. We finally crossed uh, that goal, that threshold of 50 plus patrons on uh, on the site. So we have also built a Discord server. There's a new uh, new perk when you subscribe. You can join us there, hang out with us, some friends of the show, 
uh, in there to chat along with about movies, 90s stuff, what have you. Uh, we'll give a shout out to our capitalist overlords. Their names are Linda, Jesse K, Jared Murray. Thank you all so very much for your support. And we will catch you all the next time. 